Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. Things that, again, to us now seem strange. You know, people were saying, oh, the ear doesn't have enough surface to reflect sounds. Uh, Sound itself cannot be sensed as a kind of spatial thing. You know, one um, psychologist said it would be like looking at an object and seeing it as being hard or soft. You know, um, sound can't have, you know, a sense of distance. Well, it it seems strange to us that they thought that. But then, you know, to test those ideas with the scientific method, let's say, um, so that exactly as you're saying, um, then those sensations can be reproduced and perhaps manipulated and controlled. It's a completely almost new capability to be able to control it and reproduce it in that sense. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Now, if you're anything like me, you love a good bargain. But even better than a bargain is free stuff. There's so many free tools to start recording your music with, and you've just got to know where to find them. Luckily for you, dear listener, I created a free PDF checklist of 10 free tools that you can use to start recording your music right now, as well as some fantastic bonus extras too. To grab yours, just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. And discover all my wonderful music recording and production tools just waiting for you inside. Well, hello, knob twiddlers. How are you doing? Still hanging in there, I hope. Here in the UK, we were able to meet our friends and loved ones outside in gardens and in groups of six for the first time since Christmas. And so over the weekend, I had a very tasty but cold Easter Sunday meal with my family. 
It felt amazing to be all sat round a table again together, something I definitely don't take for granted after the last 12 months. But today, we're sticking with the world of virtual Zoom meetings, and I'm joined by none other than Professor Gassia Uzunian on the podcast. Now, Gassia actually appeared on Girls Twiddling Knobs in the New Year's Eve special episode, where she introduced us to some of the female pioneers of music tech history. If you missed it, it's so worth a listen, with or without a glass of New Year's bubbles, and I've linked to it in the show notes. I promised I'd get her back to talk about her then-about-to-be-released book, Stereophonica, as it, of course, sounded awesome. Well, it's now out, and it is indeed wonderful and expertly documents the relationship between sound and space. When Gassia and I sat down to take a fascinating dive into the many artistic, scientific and technological stories inside its pages, I hadn't read the whole book yet. Well, now I have, and I can assure you it's so worth reading. It's rare to find a book that both confidently leads total newbies through a topic, while also introducing so many new ideas and people to more well-versed readers. Inside Stereophonica, Gassia transports us to times and events as diverse as Victorian sound experiments, World War I battlefields, Yoko Ono's bedroom and Beirut's sonic art scene. This is where Gassia's skill as a researcher and writer truly shine, as the interwoven threads of how sound is spatialised and what this means practically, socially and politically always connect up. In case 10 minutes into this episode you're like, yep, I need this book, I've left the link to find out more in the show notes. But without further ado, let's join Gassia and get stuck in. Okay, well, welcome back to Girls Twiddling Knobs, Gassia. Um, I loved our first chat and I'm so excited to be back. Yes. No, I'm really, really glad you're here because um, you have a wonderful book out, Stereophonica, which we talked about in the the New Year's Eve episode that we did together. And I've been reading it. I'm on chapter four <laughs> and I, I love it. Thank you. I absolutely love it. It's been so interesting. And I've actually started, it started a whole new kind of ritual of reading for me that I really like. So I get up and then I do an hour of reading before I have breakfast or do any work. And so I've been Mm. doing that this week with your book. Um, I love that. But it's just, yeah, it's really nice. It's, it's been a great way for me to actually be awake Mm. and taking things in. Also sparks ideas. Yeah. And you're not on a screen and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I've really been enjoying getting into it. Um, I, well, firstly, Can you just introduce to people what is Stereophonica? What does it explore? Sure. Um, So Stereophonica is a historical study of concepts and technologies of acoustic and auditory space. So kind of the space of sound and hearing. Um, I wanted to look at how ideas about, you know, things like spatial hearing developed over time. We take for granted things like, oh, binaural audition, we're listening with two ears, let's say, um, in most most cases. Um, But you know what, but this was an invented concept, actually. So I wanted to look at, you know, who was studying that? How did they study that? Who invented that term? How did something like uh, stereo sound recording and reproduction come about? But also, um, you know, sound location technologies during the First World War. Um, so it, it really goes into, um, 
you know, many aspects of spatial sound and hearing and, uh, you know, tries to kind of trace this his- history. Um, but what I say in the book is that instead of taking any kind of uh, linear trajectory um, into any one route, so I'm not doing a kind of whole history of stereo audio, um, but I'm kind of doing a deep dive into these different moments through which uh, ideas about sound and spatiality changed. So one of those is the like development of stereo technologies. But another one is just the idea of spatial hearing. Another one is sonic urbanism. So sound in relation to cities. Um, another one is sound mapping. So visualizing sonic environments and noise mapping. So I look into these different phenomena and each one might take, you know, 10 years uh, or it might take even 50 years. And each chapter is kind of examining something kind of close up like that. Yeah. And I, I love that about it because I think if it was a blow by blow of how sound evolved as a technology or how sound evolved as a science, it would not be well, personally anywhere near as interesting. But it's zeroing down on these moments in history where our concept of sound being spatial yeah. really takes off. And I found that uh, second chapter all about the how binaural listening even be- emerged as a concept mm-hmm. So incredible because I just had taken it for granted that we always thought of listening like that. But I was also thinking how a lot of indigenous Mm. cultures, including traditional cultures from the British Isles Mm. and Ireland, would have thought of sound like that. Mm. It's just it would have been um, expressed in more of a storytelling, supernatural way. You know, sound sensing sound was very, very prominent in ghost stories and fairy tales Mm. and all those things. So it's really... I, so I guess I, one thing I just wanted to ask what you thought about this. I often think about mm. this when you when you look at these co- um, fundamental concepts in science. A lot of the mm. time you think, well, duh. How did they not know that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. How did you not know that? Mm. And also you think, but, but people have been talking about this for ages. Have you not heard this folk song and this? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but obviously there's also so much worth mm. in understanding scientifically how it makes sense and that's what these people have uncovered for us so what's your response to that absolutely so it's interesting because i i try to allude although um it would be so fascinating to do a whole study on kind of um folk and indigenous um kind of traditions around spatial hearing certainly this is not a western invention and it is not a scientific invention my um my book does pick up at the point where that idea of spatial hearing starts to enter the scientific lexicon and starts to become systematically studied and tested um, because I'm curious to know how that community, you know, of scientists, you know, dealt with that. Um, But just as you said, uh, you know, these ideas have circulated for millennia. And I kind of in the very first chapter in the introduction, I allude to it a little bit, Um, you know, uh, what was happening before this kind of scientific examination of that concept. Um, You know, people were writing about these rapturous echoes, for example, these, you know, echoes that also had spiritual overtones. So uh, Francis Bacon, natural philosopher, um, English, he, you know, talks about this um, uh, chapel in France where the roof of the chapel is missing. And when you uh, say the word vaton, 
uh, it's repeated sometimes 13 times and, you know, but it can't, comes back to you as, um, oh, sorry, when you say the word Satan, it comes back to you as Vatan, uh, kind of be done with you. And so, you know, people are kind of saying, why is the word, why are those words transformed that way through those echoes? What do those echoes mean? Or, um, uh, there's a, you know, wonderful um, philosopher, uh, Marin Marcin, who writes Harmonie Universelle. Um, he's a French uh, minim friar. And he is thinking about the kind of, you know, this ravishing kind of language of echoes that happens in the natural world, you know, and he says, you know, echoes are, you know, nature's way of kind of harmonizing almost. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I want to look at those kinds of, you know, um, metaphysical, sometimes spiritual, sometimes religious, you know, ideas as well. Uh, they, by the way, also inform scientific studies. Um, so, you know, Ernst Schladny, who we know of through like Schladny figures, um, you know, uh, you know, he's talking about this uh, church where um, in Germany, where there's a kind of special design of the architecture. You can't see there's a hidden orchestra but you only see the kind of, you only hear the tones kind of coming out of the kind of ceiling, but it's also where there's this, um, you know, painting of Christ on the ceiling. And so, you know, these ideas were played with, you know, in many, many cultures and over hundreds and thousands, thousands of years, uh, Aristotle was also talking about uh, hearing as a spatial phenomenon. But um, yeah, so it's uh, certainly not to, um uh, not, not even not to detract from those ideas. They're so important, but also to kind of say, you know, how do they kind of bleed into also scientific thinking? Yeah. And I think the, the magical thing about what was happening in, in them working out that hearing was spatial in a scientific sense is that then you can start to experiment and replicate that and, um, and manipulate mm -hmm. that and control that. And that's where I think the kind of scientific magic starts to happen. And I think once you once you get beyond the, the basic concept that sound is spatial, that sound is binaural, not just you hold something up to your ear and you hear it in one ear, um, I think that then it starts to become mind-blowing, mm. you know, just imagining how these people would have started to put together this knowledge bank mm. of the way that sound works. Mm. It's mind blowing and um, and hugely impressive, mm. you know. And so interesting, so, I think, to think about all the different theories, you know, that were in circulation at the time. Um, things that, again, to us now seem strange. You know, people were saying, "Oh, the ear doesn't have enough surface to reflect sounds. Uh, sound itself cannot be sensed as a kind of spatial thing." You know, one um, psychologist said it would be like looking at an object and seeing it as being hard or soft. You know, um, sound can't have, you know, if sense of distance. Well, it, it seems strange to us that they thought that, but then, you know, to test those yeah. ideas with the scientific method, let's say, um, so that exactly as you're saying, um, then those sensations can be reproduced and perhaps manipulated and controlled. And this is also the time where, you know, we have these starting to have these 
electrical, um, you know, technologies, electronics, and then electroacoustics. And, you know, then to bring that into that domain, you know, is, you know, a really, it's a completely, almost new capability to be able to control it and reproduce it in that sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it must have been at the time for people just for even regular people who had no relationship to yeah. this, just that going on, um, like you say, with, you know, the invention of electricity, everything that that enabled people mm. do, to do, but also just the wealth of new theories and new concepts mm. and um, how they contradicted yeah. one another and how they changed and morphed. And just for the average person, that must have been on the one hand, incredibly exciting, but also incredibly scary mm. because your whole construct of reality mm. is constantly shifting. And I think we can identify mm. with this mm. right now, mm. but just thinking about that whole concept of what is sound and how do we hear and is it is it a thing or is it you know the 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 shadow of a thing or just absolutely um and yeah that's why also i think you know during this uh period where the book really picks up you know the late 19th century and going into the early 20th century there are as you're saying so many kind of almost like fundamental changes, uh, mass industrialization, urbanization, you know, people moving from agricultural, rural, you know, communities into cities in a kind of mass scale that's never happened before, the kind of technological revolution that's, you know, happening and that's underway and sound is part of that, you know, and what people, um, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of trace in a sense the wonder of sound, you know, during this time, also in connection to space. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the next chapter, uh, after your chapter four, um, actually goes into the Second World War and things that they're doing for uh, sonic warfare during the Second World War. They want to really understand how noise affects people and they start to do crazy experiments on people with noise you know and also yeah, yeah and and then to use sound to almost manipulate emotions that's what you know that yeah. that that next chapter is about which is happening in things like music um you know yeah. uh, exactly regulating the uh work environment and then the body and mind of the worker so you know what can sound do <laughs> you know sound is such a powerful yeah. in a sense uh medium or substance or whatever it is you know as the idea about what sound yeah. is also changes um and and that's part of the you know fascination for scientific communities for artistic communities um yeah yeah absolutely i mean thinking about chapter three where it's with in the first world war that's something that really um it kind of pops out it was something that i was thinking about in terms of the danger of sound mm -hmm. and um it's you know you you talk about the fascinating development of the technology of being able to sense or being able to hear and spatialize where an enemy warcraft is with these incredible contraptions that they wheel out into the battlefield and have to use at night. And there's two people listening and one person is listening for the amplitude and the other person is listening for the trajectory or not the trajectory, but together they, they plot the trajectory. And that's when they, and then they tell the, uh, the, the people that are firing. Mm -hmm where to fire in order to hit the plane yeah. with that delay mm. that is yeah. going to happen between them all communicating yeah. this. And it's 
mind-blowingly complicated um so i'd love to talk about that you know that that teamwork Mm. that emerged with sound but also then by the end of the chapter we're talking about how incredibly dangerous this Mm. was for these Mm. men and that many of them lost their hearing many of them you know had really bad uh listening fatigue and i'm sure were petrified of operating these machines in the dark um potentially losing their hearing as well which if that happened and it was pitch black and you're in the middle of a battlefield would be incredibly Mm -hmm. scary and that this was a very difficult and dangerous thing to be doing absolutely so um as you said you know um there is an introductory chapter and then chapter two uh, is looking at, you know, the, what I call the rise of the binaural listener, people people who are listening through stereo or binaural technologies and observing sound in three dimensions. And some of those technologies are scientific devices uh, that they're using just to test ideas of spatial hearing. And some of them are, um, you know, uh, things like stereo broadcasting systems. But so there's this kind of disciplining of the binaural listener that's happening in the 19th century through science. But then the First World War is the time where there is not only a disciplining, there's a militarization, okay, of the binaural listener in the form of this new military auditor, uh, a listener who is actually trained, soldiers that were trained during the First World War um, to listen through these incredible contraptions that I'm writing about in the book. Uh, one of them is called the bioparaboloid. One of them is called the parentelocyte meter um, to track the location of, for example, hidden airplanes at night. Um, they're getting, actually, they called them école d'écoute, schools of hearing, where the soldiers would be sent and trained to listen through these devices. And they have these uh, manuals that, you know, we can now find because they've been declassified. And you can see how they're being trained. They're doing these listening exercises. So at first, it's just one soldier who's listening and they're listening to us still Uh, object making sound so somebody clapping or using a trumpet or something then that you know object is moving um, and they're trying to track it and then they're listening to an airplane and at first they're only listening to its horizontal bearing and then they're listening to an airplane and then they're listening to its elevation and then there's two of them and one is listening to the horizontal bearing and the other is listening to its uh, elevation anyhow so they're being systematically trained okay to do this kind of directional listening to do a kind of spatial hearing and to then communicate what they're listening to, you know, to the other people who are involved in this uh, process, because you're not just listening for the sake of, you know, pinpointing where the thing is, you need to pinpoint where that airplane is so you can shoot it down. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's, that's the point. (laughs) Um, So there's like teams, you know, of listeners involved. And so I was fascinated by how during the First World War, listening changes and becomes this kind of systematic, trained um, group, collaborative, collective effort. Um, but, but also, as you're saying, that it's very dangerous. They're listening within a soundscape that uh, there's a wonderful historian called Carolyn Birdsall, and she talks about it as this brutalized soundscape okay Mm. this new kind of technological warfare that's happening it's extremely loud (laughs) you know all of these Mm -hmm. kinds of artillery um you know and bombs and aircraft and you know everything those noises 
Um, and, you know, they don't have ear protectors. Um, there's nothing protecting their hearing. Uh, even things like hearing damage was kind of a new idea. Um, and yeah. But people are reporting that, you know, soldiers' ears are bleeding, you know. So, of course, there's yeah. like a and and of course, it's it's a it's a war and there's so much brutality and this is part of it. Um, but in a, in conjunction with that. There are scientists who are then studying what is listener fatigue. You know, how long can mm. somebody listen through this device and have this what they call acoustic aiming be correct? Mm. Well, after about 19 minutes, uh, they totally go off course. So they're quote unquote not useful. Mm. So next, you know, yeah. and for me, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting kind of uh, part of the story is, you know, military uh, research and acoustics. It's such a fascinating story that I think has only been kind of skimmed, let's say, in the academic literature. And we're now starting to find those, you know, archives and where this, you know, information is even held. Um so there was, I think, much, much, much more work that could be done in that area. Um, but kind of how they view the listener and view the body. And it's this very functional yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. How useful. Absolutely. What way are you useful? And that's it. You know, that, that's, yeah. that's what you are. that you're just disposable. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, as a musician and as someone also who's gone through a horrific onset of tinnitus years ago mm -hmm. and has been, you know, has um, clawed their sense of hearing back to normality. Yeah. The idea, when I was reading that chapter, that is like my, you know, one of my ultimate fears would be to be in that position. Go and stick your ears in this, these mm. he headsets where you may be totally deafened, even have blood pouring out of yeah. your ear. And, um, and that there's no, because they're not digital, these instruments, there's no volume no, no. control. <laughs> so it just is what it is. You know, it's however that's been yeah, designed, yeah. that's how loud Absolutely. it will be. And that's it. Absolutely. And it's the design of those um, devices for listening, as well as simply how loud those soundscapes were, you know, of war, of war yeah. and, and kind of in an unprecedented level of uh, loudness. Um, you know, there was never maybe as loud an event historically for such a sustained yeah. amount of time as the first world war. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, soldiers were sent into that battlefield, um, completely subject to those br brutalities. Um, and yeah. actually by the time of the second world war, they're then thinking about how to then weaponize that, you know, how to weaponize loudness mm -hmm. <laughs> and how to yeah, yeah. Sonic force and and actually use yeah. that to either torture people or to even do things like psychological screening. So they start doing this thing where they, yeah. you know, uh, record and reproduce and they got this kind of theater uh, director to create basically these kind of brutal soundscapes that they're um, using to test on soldiers as they're coming in and seeing, mm -hmm. can this person handle you know, battle or are they going to, yeah. you know, lose it basically and, and using yeah. that as a screening test, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. even that is yeah. really, you know, horrific if you think about it. Um, it is. And I, and I've also, I was also thinking, sorry, it's no, still no, no, on no, chapter no. three here no in my no. head, but, but I was also thinking when I was reading that, that, you know, if you were being screened for your capabilities of listening yeah. spatially, then let's say you're a musician, you're probably going to mm -hmm. be better at that. 
you know, you're probably going to be more attuned. And then how, how, uh, scary that is thinking about as musicians going into a situation where your hearing could be compromised. And then, you know, obviously the first world war, there's so many casualties, but just thinking from a music musician perspective, sound perspective, how awful it would be if you, that particular skill of yours then disappeared because you were seen as so disposable. You know, yeah. On one, on the one hand, you're valuable because you have this kind of special skill which is needed. Um, and as you said, you know, musicians who have trained uh, hearing um, would probably have a you know more acute spatial sense of sound uh, of listening. Um, and, and probably were more likely. Of course, I, I couldn't find, let's say, records of who is a musician or not, but likely, no. as you're saying, you know, um, it, it would have been likely people who did have more kind of experience listening kind of carefully and over long periods of time uh, who would have been chosen, you know, for those kinds of exercises uh, or for the to, to play that role. And but yes, they're going in completely unaware, you know, of what's what's about to happen. And and the um, loss of hearing and hearing damage is, you know, um, one of the ways in which people are uh, disabled through the war. Um, yeah. And uh, but actually one one, I guess, slightly positive thing that then comes from that is that there is much more awareness than about uh, mm. hearing loss and um and and uh protection and then starting to create these like ear defenders what they call and and that this is a you know sense that must be protected um and yeah and also treating then soldiers who were traumatized after the war um for uh hearing damage so that that is something that was happening in france anyway um yeah absolutely um okay great so so thinking then we, we kind of get into World War II territory and it's becoming more like after seeing the fallout or the effect that sound has had, um, then using it as a, a weapon. Um, so that's very, very interesting and, and quite yeah. chilling. Um, no, and I haven't got to that bit of the book yet. <laughs> no, there's no, I, I, I didn't uh, expect, I mean, you you only received the book about a week ago. So, uh, and it's a, yes, so, but- <laughs> yeah, uh, the reason I then go into this uh, second world war stuff is because I found this really interesting figure called Harold Burris Meyer. Um, part of the reason I wanted to write this book too, is to kind of tell the story of people who were involved in these different kind of sound projects, you know, over the 20th century. Some of them are known, some of them are not so well known. He's a really interesting guy who was actually quite influential in his time, um, but his name was somewhat, let's say, lost to history. Um, So he is uh, working in New Jersey at the Stevens Institute of Technology. At first, he's a drama instructor and he starts to say, you know, we really control the light environment of the theater, but not the sound environment. He says, you know, sound control is really almost stuck in the middle ages. All we're, we're still using the same props and mechanical devices as we were in the, you know, 15th and 16th centuries, for example. So he wants to modernize the acoustic apparatus of the theater. And so he starts, he creates this group called uh, um, the Sound Control kind of research group at Stevens Institute of Technology. 
they're working in drama in the theater. But what they start to do is, for example, uh, using new electroacoustic technologies, so loudspeakers, you know, sound recording apparatus, amplifiers, things like that. You know, sending sounds to different parts of the theater um, that wasn't happening before. You know, there was no such thing as a sound technician, of course, um, uh, in the 1930s. Um, and then also controlling auditorium acoustics. Really, at the, the the initial idea was to help basically suspend disbelief. You're in the theater. You want, you know, when the witches are uh, speaking for the sound to come up from overhead, you know, and not. Yeah. Or you want, for example, uh, when an actor is speaking their inner thoughts, what they used to do is another actor would come on stage and speak that person's thoughts for them. Mm. <laughs> okay, well, that's, you know, breaking that suspension of disbelief. So how can you do it? So he's, you know, then recording their inner thoughts and then playing back their loudspeaker. Yeah. It sounds really simple and obvious to us today. But again, it's because we can do that now. But he was doing yeah. like very early experiments in this kind of thing. But then what he's kind of discovered was you can, he said, you know, really actually manipulate people's emotions um, using sound. So he starts doing things like, uh, infrasound so subsonic frequency um sending it through the theater floor and making people feel a bit you know queasy or nervous or something before they can hear that you know before he then brings that sound up to kind of uh the spectrum of human hearing you know you're feeling the sound before you're hearing it but so he's noticing that you know mm. you can kind of manipulate things like that well that started to get quite a bit of attention people were like well what if a political party started sending you know sound messages into people's uh brains and started mm. you know manipulating people what would uh, adolf hitler who's you know on the rise um during this time what would he do yeah. if he could kind of manipulate people with infrasounds or supersonic sounds so it's it's also a new thing that's never been tested before so you know they're curious about that he actually becomes recruited by muzak uh the company that's sending wired it's called you know um wireless music wireless radio um so it's sending music into factories and, uh, uh, you know, so people are listening to music uh, all day long and that's supposed to kind of keep their energy up and things like oh, that. Wow. Yeah. So hang on a minute, Gassia. So Muzak was actually yeah. a company. I, see, I've, I know the term and I know what it means in modern day life. It's like the music that comes on yeah. in the lift. Yeah, it's, it's that. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> or the music that's played in the yeah. mall or whatever. But um, that was, was a company then. It was. Use that. And I um, see. actually, wow. again, a very interesting uh, kind of historical tidbit is that Muzak was actually invented. The company was founded by the guy uh, who is called George Owen Squire, um, Colonel General George Owen Squire, who was the chief signal officer of the Signal Corps in the First World War in the United States. So he was in charge of the, you know, um, part of the U.S. Army that was in charge of communications. So that guy founded Muzak and then he hired this guy, Boris Meyer, as the kind of vice president of Muzak. Mm -hmm. And so then Muzak was founded in 1922 under the name Wired Radio. And then it was renamed Muzak in 1934. Boris Meyer joins Muzak uh, in 1938, and he's already doing this kind of theater stuff. And what he then starts to do with Muzak is to see how can we use uh, music 
to manipulate workers' emotions. Okay. So maybe you want to keep them more alert. Maybe you want to, you know, take them through a kind of trajectory over the course of the day. Maybe you actually want to kind of make them more patriotic. So they want to kind of work in these, you know, wartime manufacturing plants and production factories and kind of work all day long, but also feel excited about their work. So they're actually starting to study things like musical behaviorism, using music to produce certain behaviors in people. Mm. Well, they are then invited by the National Defense Research Committee during the Second World War to do things in what we now call applied psychoacoustics. So, um, you know, Mm. using applications of the you know psychology of hearing but for the purpose of warfare and you know i kind of look at some of their experiments and the weird things they did basically during the second world war in the service of you know um studying sound and noise and its effects quote unquote on man yeah Yeah. to see how they could actually weaponize some of that knowledge and so yeah this is where it gets so interesting thinking about how important the wars have been in us understanding sound, understanding how sound behaves in space, and then understanding how that affects us as humans. And that, you know, that that in lots of ways was done for quite chilling reasons, had quite chilling consequences. But then this has led to so much mm, art yeah. as well. It's a really, you know, not paradoxical, that's the wrong word. Um, it's a complicated thing because war obviously is bad. (laughs) Okay. It leads to countless deaths and uh, needless Mm. deaths and vast destruction. Um, And it's also, there are times of great kind of scientific advance and innovation. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's good in that sense at all, (laughs) Um, but certainly in the realm of acoustics in the arena of acoustics the two world wars i think are the times in which our understanding of sound and acoustics um advances the most by far um of any time in human history yeah yeah yeah, incredible um so when we come to chapter six um we we've come into the poetics and the politics of space and um i I have yeah, not. Maybe you can sure. introduce to us. You know, we're coming into how it's being used yeah, as an aesthetic yeah. component, aren't we? In art, and this is part of the project behind this book too. Is to say, you know, science isn't happening in a vacuum, and neither is music and art. It's all tied up. Okay. Um, so Edgar Varese, this uh, for me wonderful composer uh, who is dreaming about writing a spatial music in the 1920s and even earlier in the 1910s because he says he was very claustrophobic as a child and he wanted music made of sound set free. He said, you know, that's what his dream was. Mm. Um, but he was dreaming this before they had these like electroacoustic capabilities or the ability to send sound, you know, through multiple channels to different loudspeakers and have that kind of spatial audio, multi-channel audio. Mm. He was dreaming about that. Um, he wants to actually work with these scientists. You know, he applies for grants to do projects with the people at Bell Telephone Laboratories, acoustics researchers there who, guess what? They start doing their acoustics research during the First World War. Most of them weren't doing that kind of thing before. They were physicists and engineers. They were thinking about, sure, sending signals through telephone lines, but not sound in this kind of depth. 
anyway, so a composer like Varese, um, you know, he is then um, enabled through the development of these technologies, many of them rooted in wartime research, uh, the first stereo systems, uh, stereo sound reproduction systems uh, in the 1930s really came out of those uh, sound location experiments in the First World War. And it was the same people, actually, who did that and then did that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 So, you know, a composer like Farah is what he did. His maybe best known work of spatial music was at the 1958 World's Fair in Brussels, where he projected music from 425 loudspeakers in the Philips Pavilion. Um, so the, you know, technology company, electronics company Philips, you know, they make toasters and TVs and things like that. They had their um, big pavilion. They invited the architect Le Corbusier to, at first they wanted him to kind of just design the building, but Le Corbusier said, no, I want to, you know, not just make the shell. I want to create a whole multimedia work. And he said, and Varvaz must be the composer. And he brought on board filmmakers and sculptors. And it was like this whole experience. Well, people walked into this pavilion, there's hanging sculptures, colored lights, it's a film on two screens, so it's kind of immersive, 425 speakers inside this incredible actual, you know, form of a building designed by Zanakis, who at the time was an architect in Le Corbusier's studio, um, and before he was a well-known composer, Yanis Zanakis. Um and they're hearing these sounds kind of emanate from all these points at once. It feels almost like a physical assault. Uh, this is 1958. This is after the Second World War. But people are remembering the war mm-hmm. and the experience. Anyway, it was the first time for many people that they're experiencing this kind of, you know, spatially reproduced sound. And for Varez, it's the kind of culmination of his many decades long dream to create this kind of spatial music. Um So I start looking at, you know, that early language of uh, spatial music in that Western art music world. And, you know, at first it's this very almost geometrical and mathematical language. They're talking about, you know, angles and masses and planes of sound and sound objects that they're locating in three-dimensional space. So it's this kind of When I say Euclidean, it's like Euclidean geometry or Cartesian mathematics is kind of like the X, Y, you know, Z grid kind of Mm three-dimensional space like that. Mm -hmm. But then you also have, not too long after that, um, people like Yoko Ono and people associated with the Fluxus artists who are also thinking about uh, sound and space in quite a different way. You know, Yoko Ono has this really beautiful piece called Tape Piece, Room Piece, in which she says, take the sound of the room breathing at dawn, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, before dawn. Bottle the smell of the room of that particular hour as well. So she's conceptualizing the room itself as a kind of like, you know, um, uh, entity, something that has a voice, you know, that she's documenting. And that's very different than just this kind of three-dimensional blank space that you're putting sounds into, you know? So going from that then to these more um, extended concepts of uh, social space and political space, those are also Mm. ideas that come to the foreground in the 1960s in the writings of people like Henri Lefebvre and the Situationists. And, you know, when we're talking about space, we're no longer just talking about empty 
geometrical space. We're also talking about the social production of space, the political production of space. So I want to trace that trajectory too. It's a spatial concept. And then I want to see how does that happen in the sound world? So then I look at the work of people who are um, doing sound works that really are about social spaces and political spaces. So uh, there's this wonderful Finnish artist called Heidi Fast. She does a series of works where she mm-hmm. takes people through their uh, apartment buildings. Um, they go into each other's, um, you know, apartments and the staircases. They vocalize together these kind of nonsensical, let's say, uh, vocal sounds and exploring this, you know, space through sound. Well, there's a kind of obviously like social dimension of, <laughs> to this work. Um, you know, she's intervening into this domestic kind of space. Or political uh, spaces as well. I, I look at this work by um, a Native Canadian artist called Rebecca Belmore, uh, who's Indigenous. She's um, Ojibwe, and she's responding to this um, crisis called uh, the Oka crisis that was happening in um, Oka, Quebec in the 90s. And she cr- installs this massive um, megaphone in these remote locations in Canada, and she invites indigenous uh canadians to she says speak to their mother through this megaphone well this is again a very different you know conception of um you know the relationship of sound and space where is this place of politics what does it mean to speak to the land to have your voice amplified through this device and reach the land so yeah i i guess i i look at not only those kind of works about 3d sound but about also social and political space with sound. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think one thing that I'm kind of this coming to mind when you're talking is um, the spectrum of our relationship with sound between on the one hand, one extreme that kind of control manipulation of sound within space. And then the other end of the spectrum is very much observing, listening, Mm. sensing Mm. that space. And the, you know, the Yoko Ono piece is very much on that end of the spectrum of observing the space. And then um, even the the piece that you're mm-hmm. talking about in the Phillips, yeah, um, yeah, what yeah, is it called? Yeah. The Phillips, the Phillips pyramid? Pavilion, or the Phillips? Which looks a bit like a um, actually, yeah. <laughs> pavilion. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the Phillips Pavilion where it's so controlled, it's so constructed and manipulated, you know, and not to say that one is better than the other, but just um, then there's this whole spectrum of, pieces that move along that spectrum in a sense um totally. other spectrums too obviously no, you're absolutely but, right um that Phillips yeah. pavilion work it's only eight minutes long but it took a team of engineers nine months to create it to make it go along all these sound routes and channels wow. and you know so you know um it's also early technologies of this sort you know but that's the very kind of tech heavy side (laughs) um and then what yoko ono does is you know maybe quite you know uh in some some people might view it as quite a kind of basic form or gesture but it's equally as powerful you know and and kind of turns things on their head actually yoko ono for me is Mm -hmm. you know one of the most interesting artists who's working around this uh period in the 1960s with sound Mm. um and and uh you know her work really actually comes out of her own studies of music in japan when she was a young uh girl and she says when she was studying um 
actually they were instructed to listen to the sounds of the environment and start to notate and transcribe those. Mm -hmm. So from a very young age, kind of age three, she was kind of training herself to listen to environmental sound and to notate, to create musical works um, that, uh, you know, uh, were about that medium. And so now, you know, we think yeah. of soundscape, we think about Armory Schaefer or maybe John Cage and people like that. But actually Yoko Ono is, mm-hmm. I think, a very influential thinker. Um, yeah. Yeah, she's a really interesting figure because um, I feel like I don't know enough actually about her early work, you know, and I think that throughout over the course of history, she has been labelled as a kook and someone mm. that split up the Beatles. And it's, you know, obviously this is girls twiddling mm. knobs, so you can't help but uh, make the observation or ask the question, would that have been the case if she'd have been a man? You know, and, and would her work have I been more valued? I think she would say, and anyone with a critical uh, mind would say, absolutely would be very different, you know, if she were a man. Um, you know that... Uh, John Lennon's song Imagine um, was partly inspired by her uh, scores. Wasn't there an article that came out recently where it had a quote from him where he said something along the lines of, she co-produced this or she co-wrote this, but I was too macho at the time to admit it, something like that. That's exactly it. Right before he was assassinated or murdered uh, in something like December 1980, he gave an interview, I think it was to the BBC, in which he says, actually, she should get co-writer credit for that because he said it was a response Mm -hmm. to one of her instruction scores. She created, you know, um, over a hundred of these beautiful scores, which were kind of verbal instructions for actions. And a lot of them had the word imagine, you know, in it. And uh, he said, actually, his uh, work imagine was almost like a realization of one of her scores. Um, And he said, he says, Mm. you know, if I wasn't so macho, I would have always given her credit for it, just as I would for, you know, this male producer or that male whatever. Um, and, and actually yeah. they used that, I guess, uh, it became a legally, you know, established thing at one point, uh, that actually she did end up getting co-writer credit for that as, as well she should, because, you know, she brought whole f- new forms to the table. <laughs> okay. Things like those instructional scores, they become then kind of, um, more codified in Fluxus as event scores. She was doing them before she met any of those Fluxus artists, you know, when she was a student also at Sarah Lawrence College. And you're right, Isabel, many people don't know her early work uh, as 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 I did not either yeah. uh, until I was just recently reading about it, just uh, in preparation for this other article. Um, but yeah, she, and she was also uh, writing works in Japanese language. Um, and, uh, you know, but when, when she was exhibiting, for example, these event scores, I mean, they were hugely influential. The who's who, you know, of the art world would come see them. But as you said, uh, and she was very well known, actually, as an artist, um, but uh, not that, maybe not um, as valued as she should have been. And then, of course, when she uh, became associated with John Lennon, she was called the names you used and much worse, (laughs) you know, in a very public way, you know, humiliated and excoriated yeah yeah, for decades and then now there's kind of more of a recognition Mm. of her contribution but it's long Mm. overdue and yeah yeah 
Well, um, no, I'm really looking forward to finding out more about that and and just kind of looking forward through the book. Once we get to the yeah. the end of the book, we're talking more about sound mapping, yeah. noise mapping, um, and urban urban sound um, mapping, yeah. I guess, as well. And um, one thing I feel like sure. I have to bring up is this concept of the oh, yeah. Isabel map. <laughs> And I'd never, I'd never heard of this. I don't know how sure, I've missed I this mean, in my years no, of researching um, uh, sound and maps and sound cartography. You know, yeah, I haven't really read about it either. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, if it's Isabel or Isobel, or I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, so this was an invention of Armory Schaefer, who is a Canadian composer who founds this project called the World Soundscape project. He wants to study sound environments, soundscapes, um, actually initially in order to track the effects of noise pollution on them. So um, what they, uh, what the Isobel map was, was it's a hybrid of the term isolines, so lines of equal value, and decibel. Okay. Yeah, so maybe isobel is more like it then yeah again i don't know i've never heard it said out loud um now today we have these things called you know noise maps which um many most cities in the world have to produce them by law uh if you're a european city of a certain size you have to produce um a noise map um according to the european noise directive of like 2002 the end directive um, now, those noise maps are usually like these topographical kind of contour maps. They show kind of, you know, there's, it's like yellow that becomes orange, that becomes red, you know, so the yellow part is like not as noisy, the orange is getting noisier, the red isn't. Yeah, you've seen those kinds of, you know, uh, noise maps of cities, you know, the highways are loud and, yes, you know, yeah. but actually, so uh, Armory Schaefer and his World Soundscape Project Group, they were doing these kinds of noise mappings. Um by hand <laughs> okay so they were taking a noise level yeah. reader um and going in like a park an urban park uh you know traveling a, along a path in a systematic way taking a level noise level reading every 100 meters and then coming back doing it again averaging the values and then you know and then doing these like drawings where they're showing that kind of thing but by hand they're drawing it yeah, so um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was looking at the history of noise mapping um, and sound mapping because they're representations of sonic environments. So again, sonic environment, that's a spatial kind of thing, you know, a soundscape. Um, but I wanted to trace the history of those notations also because then they're used in legislation, noise legislation. So yeah. they inform how those yeah. laws are uh, constructed. So actually those visualizations yeah. of sound and sound environments actually are really important because they determine how and who gets to make noise and where and yeah, and how those laws are formed. So um, I kind of argue that the way that noise mapping develops really is kind of um to the advantage of things like airline industries, um, they're biased actually in kinds of maps and they're really produced by ex excerpt, uh, experts. Um, that's, yeah, that's actually a, um, argument that, uh, an, another theorist called Peter, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to say his last name, Churhart, 
has developed. Um, and I'm looking at this idea, but uh-huh. in connection to these, yeah, other kind of expanded uh, history of noise mapping. Um, so, so chapter eight is sonic urbanism in Beirut. Why Beirut? And what's what was going on there that interested you? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, you know, people are going to come to this book and yeah, they're going to see, okay, early studies in 19th century uh, psychology, auditory space perception. Then we have, you know, early stereo technologies, early sound location technologies, all making sense, kind of <laughs> the progression, sound recording, reproduction. How do we end up in Beirut? <laughs> um, so, um Originally, that last chapter was going to be a bit more general about kind of sonic architecture and this kind of, um, let's say, uh, these new interdisciplinary projects between sound and architecture. So you have, for example, this beautiful building that I would recommend anyone visit whenever it's now going to be back opened um, called Vex in London. And it's by an architecture firm called Chance de Silva and the musician um, scanner, uh, Robin Rambo. And uh, it's a building that is actually based on the chance methods of John Cage and these spiraling forms of Eric Satie's Vexation, his uh, piano composition. And there's sound throughout the building, which is actually recorded uh, of the sounds of corn pouring concrete when the building was being built. And it's really beautiful. And, you know, this is a really, for me, interesting kind of merger of music and architecture. Um, So I was going to write about projects like this, kind of in the domain of like sonic architectures and again, uh, staying in this kind of spatial sound um, history. I went to Beirut um, and, and I wanted to talk about sonic urbanism. So kind of how sound artists are also creating sound art for urban spaces, um, things that are, in a sense, reorienting urban spaces through sound. I went to Beirut and it uh, totally turned everything on its head for me, basically. Um, it's it's where I was born. It's where I, I've always wanted to visit. And I, I knew I would visit one day. Um, and uh, the work that I encountered there and the artists, their work, uh, it completely changed, you know, how I was thinking essentially about any of it. And so I thought, well, I can't not write it. It it would be dishonest in a sense to uh, stick to the chapter I was initially planning. Um, So I I focused on Beirut then as a case study of sonic urbanism. So how sound artists are engaging with the urban sphere. Now, Beirut is a very interesting, you know, city um, because it is, what someone has called um, the victim of herbicide. It's, you know, undergone a very brutal civil war. And uh, not only just the civil war, uh, which is like when I was born, it was in the 1970s that it started, 75 to, uh, I want to say, 1890. Um, But also since then, there have been, you know, a a shorter war with Israel. Um, There's been a lot of upheaval, government, uh, basically, um, incompetencies, uh, that have led to things like the garbage crisis where they weren't taking garbage away for, you know, months and months. And it's just the city, you know, filling up with garbage. It's also a city in which, um, the way in the 
which the rebuilding happened is uh, fascinating and very disturbing because it's these projects that were then outsourced to these um, kind of star architects um, and not local architects. And so the kind of design of redesign of Beirut in the post-war context is really um, fascinating, but it's also a city which is very sadly still undergoing, you know, terrible, terrible political upheaval and economic uh, collapse. So the Lebanese pound is now basically worth nothing and uh, people are barely able to get by. Um, so all of this to say, it was also a, you know, for me, the soundworks that I was kind of encountering that were about the city. Actually, I thought they were so interesting from the almost kind of perspective of forensic um, uh, analysis. They were providing evidence of these kinds of political, economic, social, cultural forces at work on this city. Um, and, you know, telling us, revealing things about the city that would be difficult to know otherwise. Um, so for me, it really changed then. It wasn't just art for art's sake. It wasn't about sound art and aesthetics. It wasn't about kind of even these like liberationists. Sometimes you have discourses about art and how art can kind of free people or, you know, um, get people to think a different way or transform places. It wasn't about that. For me, it was about enabling us to understand what's happening in this place mm -hmm. in which there are so many interests, local, national, transnational, and revealing that. So, just to give you one or two examples yeah. of that. For me, one of the most uh, interesting pieces I, um, I and artist I met in Beirut was called Natalie Harm, and she created this work called Silent Room. Um, and it is an architecture. It's this two-story temporary building that she installed in a parking lot um, at the edge of two low-income neighborhoods and a highway. And... Beirut is a very loud city. If you want to talk about noise pollution, uh, this is a city in which noise has been very poorly regulated, actually, mm -hmm. and in which people are subject to the harms of noise in which in ways that could be prevented, mm. but that are not. Okay. Yeah. Um, so she created uh, what she thought of as a kind of sensorially muted environment because she said, actually, noise pollution affects different people differently uh, based on class and income. You know, uh, if you are middle class or upper class, you can escape. You can go somewhere else. You can live on the top floor of the building. You can, you know, have acoustical paneling, blah, blah, blah. That's not the case for most people, especially people who are like working on the street and things like that. So you could enter the silent room that was acoustically treated to really reduce the noise levels. So it was a quiet space, but she also recorded um, the sounds of the city at the quietest hour of the day. So like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. and made that into a kind of meditative soundtrack that you could listen to in that room. It was a freely accessible space. It was almost like an acoustic refuge. And she almost thought of it as a, as a public utility and something that cities should provide. Um, so, you know, for me, this was such a fascinating, you know, work. It was about social justice, but through this realm of sound and noise in the city. Yes. I think for me, um, the, the, the thing that I can liken that to the most in the UK which is not the case so much anymore, is the library, the role of the library. Mm. That, you know, wherever you are in a big city, if you go into a library, it's quiet. It's somewhere that you can take some time for yourself. 
um, it, lots of people use libraries for that, you know, or did, and now yeah. they're being closed down and they're yeah. becoming cafes. And I think that that, that reminds me of that sanctuary that yeah. in this, in, it's a kind of sacred kind of yeah, space. So kind of, and the, the quiet and the peacefulness and these spaces are so vital. I agree. And um, this is why I think, you know, her work was such a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's giving uh, Beirutis almost like a mm, imagined possibility of their city. Um, And it's kind of drawing attention to noise as a kind of social injustice. You know, who is subjected to noise and um, who can escape that? You know, the fact that we have something like the British Library, such a privilege. Me too. I'm in Oxford City of Libraries. Basically, I can, you can't, you know, you can throw a rock and you'll hit a library. Well, it's like the biggest privilege on the, in the planet, you know, to be able to have space to think, you know, and uh, have meditative thought and just kind of actually feel okay in your environment and your sound environment. Um, So, yeah, I think this was a very powerful work. Um, and there was another, I mean, there are a couple, uh, it's, it's actually difficult to choose. Yeah. Um, but, um, there was another beautiful, um, not just beautiful, but very powerful piece, uh, called concrete sampling by an artist called Jonami and Ilaria Lupo, uh, two artists. And what they did, uh, you know, he was thinking about noise as well and kind of, uh, bodies who are subjected to noise and in Beirut there is almost non-stop construction work going on mm-hmm. well that's very noisy mm-hmm. um, but construction workers there don't have the same kinds of protections as workers here mm-hmm. and of course their hearing is very much you know subjected to uh, damage mm-hmm. and most of them are Syrian refugees who are rebuilding Beirut um, a city that is actually increasingly rejecting them. Uh, Beirut is actually home to uh, many refugees. Uh, One in four people in Lebanon is a refugee. So Lebanon has the highest per capita uh, refugee population in the world. Mm -hmm. So it has actually been a very welcoming city to people who are escaping for, you know, political and uh, other reasons, their homelands. Um, but uh, these Syrian refugee workers are sometimes living in those construction sites. Okay, and, and, and these they're... are people who have obviously been through something very traumatic already, and then they they you know they're surrounded by noise. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And uh, what what uh, Joe and Ilaria did was they um, approached a group of um, construction workers aged around eighteen to sixty. 24 uh, Syrian men and I guess boys uh, and um, they asked if they would you know be willing to participate in and they they paid them for this uh, this project in which they use those construction tools like hammers and you know drills and things like that as almost musical instruments and they start to make music together in those sites um, wow. And they came, to, you know, every day for over a period of, you know, two months or so uh, to kind of do that, share music together as well. The music that, you know, is valuable to them. Mm-hmm. And then they did a public performance and the power of that public performance too, from the depths of this construction site, which is like underground and they're playing up and people wow. are, you know, standing around the perimeter of that site listening. It's also about you know, making visible this invisible population um, and inaudible population, basically. Yeah. Amazing. Um, 
Well, I can't wait to to get into the rest of the book. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm loving it. I think that anyone who's interested in sound and who's curious about how this concept of of sound being spatial has come about and then how it's shaped our our culture and our history and our our reality now will love the book too. And something that it made me think about was because as I've been reading this book, I've been making the episode for Girls Twiddling Oz that came out this week, which is about dyslexia. But inside that episode, I talk about, um, I think this book helped me to understand how I spatialized sound in my head. You know, Mm -hmm. that that's very much um, not the only way, but one of the ways that I write music and produce Mm -hmm. music I I don't necessarily visualize it, but I spatialize it in my head. Mm-hmm. And that I loved how you described that as a sense, you know, that yeah. is yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah. That's the thing. I think I think sensing space is a sense. And mm-hmm. I think I do use that sense to write music as well as other senses too, clearly. But it it helped me. It helped me to understand that it wasn't a visual thing for me. It wasn't visualizing the sound. It was spatializing the sound in my head, which has a visual component, but it also has a physical component. And mm. I don't know, like a, well, very much obviously a psychological component. Um, it's been so good to sit and chat about um, Stereophonica. I really, really am loving it. And I, I've loved talking to you about it too. Thank so you thank so you so much. much. It's, it's, it's um, always such a pleasure to talk, to speak with you. And, you know, I was saying, Isabel, and I, I, I hope I'm not going to embarrass you <laughs> by saying this on your podcast, but I think you're so hugely talented. Um, what you're doing in this podcast too, as I've been listening and, you know, I, I, I said it to you the other day, but I wanted to say it now is really not many people could do this and you are such a natural but you're also so tuned in and empathetic and you know uh deeply engaged uh with these ideas and it comes from you and your real commitment as well to um you know helping other women especially kind of uh achieve their dreams in this field and i i just deeply admire it and i love it Thank you so much, Gassia. And something, I mean, that's just, uh, yeah, it's so incredible to hear that, especially from you, because I deeply respect you. And something that we said when we were on the phone, actually, I said to you, I don't think I'd be doing this work if it wasn't for meeting you. You know, you've been such a massive influence in me exploring this, in me believing in myself, in also having a I would, you know, I'd see a female ally in this field and also a role model and a mentor. And it's been, you know, massive having the the uh, opportunity to get to know you and work with you and play music with you and you learn how to research from you. And yeah. Thank you so much as well. I, I will just stop there because people will be like, oh, mutual admiration. Yes. Society. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm genuinely really touched. And um you can't see, but I'm sending a big heart <laughs> through the ether. And thank you. Yes. That's uh, more than any person could ever hope for. Now, I won't repeat how much admiration I have for this lady. As Gassia said, that could get a little old for you, dear listener. But I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I did recording it. 
I feel so, so grateful to have had the chance to chat with Gassia about her incredible work. If there's one thing I take from Stereophonica and my conversation with Gassia today, it's how crucial spatiality is to the very nature of sound and therefore how creative it can be to more deeply explore this in our own work. How could spatiality enhance your recordings? How could it help bring deeper meanings, multiple realities, or more complex identities to your music? And how can we ever really imagine sound and music without a space to hear them in, even if only inside our own minds? Now, in the podcast next week... Well, there won't actually be an episode next week because here at Girls Twiddling Knobs HQ, we're taking a well-earned couple of weeks off. My reading and listening list is piling up and I'm looking forward to some sofa time with the record player rotating, a book in my hand and a cat on my lap. In the meantime, though, dear listener, there's now a whopping 24 episodes of the podcast for you to explore before I've peeled myself off the couch. And I'm back here again on April the 28th. And remember to grab your 10 free recording tools PDF cheat sheet from femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. But for now, take care. And I'll catch you here in a couple of weeks. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Francesca O'Connor and is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, and you know someone else who would love it too, be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.